in the year of our Luigi 2020, <laughs> uh, we've all become cable guys. During the few moments that we have left, I want Welcome again to High Level Casting. Today we are talking about the movie that everyone didn't go and see in the summer of, what year was it, guys? 1996. 1996, the wonderfully excitable Jim Carrey in the horribly dark yet hilarious comedy, The Cable Guy. I'm joined today with my esteemed colleagues, foreign correspondent, Ethan. Mm. We've got Zach and doug uh i prefer the big ragu so this one has been near and dear to our hearts i feel like we all kind of ran into it at different times whenever i finally went and saw this film the one scene that always stuck out in my mind and is still one of my favorite scenes in like a jim carrey film still has to be the medieval knights duel and if you could encapsulate this film in like one 10 minute intersection where you could just snip it right out and just remove all of the anxiety and homoeroticism, that is your typical Jim Carrey skit. All right, you want to play rough? Daddy can play rough! It's like when Spock had to fight Kirk on Star Trek. Best friends forced to do battle. Jim Carrey, right? Excellent. Jim Carrey. This is a classic. So, Zach, what goes on in The Cable Guy? This film is very intriguing in multiple ways, but... It, in a nutshell, is a cable guy played by Jim Carrey who has an addictive need to make friends wherever and however he can. And he finds himself in the home of our main character, who's played by Matthew Broderick, and basically inserts himself into his life and helps and continuously hinders him throughout his romantic exploits of trying to recover his relationship with his proposed to girlfriend that dropped him at the very beginning of the film. Uh, So we get to see a roller coaster in multiple ways through friendship, family, and, and romantic partners and the chaos that ensues really. Uh, Laugh. You'll cry. You'll learn a few things by the end. You'll feel deeply unsettled and angry. One of my favorite breakdowns, uh, (laughs) like one sentence breakdown was that this film depicts a man experiencing desperation for a friend, which ultimately becomes a hunt for a brother and ends with the opportunity to find a family that could accept him for all while at the expense of someone else. Interesting. Heart emoji. (laughs) With that said... It's important to break down and take note of Jim Carrey's acting career leading up to this point, as well as directly after it, as well as many big names that overlaps with this film, being both actors, directors, etc. Doug, 
Oh, sorry. Big ragu. Yeah, the baby. <laughs> Big ragu. Doug has left what? the building, but a man wearing a fake mustache with a name tag that only says the Big Ragu has joined the, us. The Big Ragu has ascended. <laughs> you can't see it right now, but Doug just decided to, at that moment to take a nice big swig of beer. <laughs> so this film had a rocky, rocky road, you might say. I think it's important to examine this movie in the context of the Carrie canon that I have coined. This is a phrase I have coined just now. The cin- cinematic tradition. Yeah. Right. Right. Not, tradition. Not, not to be confused with the uh, Jim Carrey cinematic universe. Do we include uh, in living color in this? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. This is, that, that is a, a formative mm-hmm. text. This is like, this is like Zizek studies. Yeah. It's going to, yeah, it's a department is Carrey studies. Can I just say, so we're talking about Jim Carrey. Uh, and it sounds like with your introduction, Jeremy, you guys had, right? You guys thought like he was hilarious in this movie. Would you say that? No. Yeah, I I would. I fucking hated him in this movie. <laughs> and I think it's just like, I cannot deal with, I guess, yeah, maybe Doug, you can talk about this more, but like he is a very distinct force in in comedy, especially in the 90s, right? He's like, this is specific full body like vaudevillian he is he is a jester pulled from hell and put on our screens it repulses me on a very basic level to watch him just making noise and stuff but please yeah i don't really know much about his career so please divulge in me carrie carrie scholar but i give you guys a a crash course in carrie studies carrie 101 baby so as we established earlier, The Cable Guy came out in 1996. By this point, Jim Carrey has probably, like, speaking strictly about his comedy career, I think it's safe to say that he peaked because mm-hmm. yeah. just two years before, we have Ace Ventura Pet Detective, mm-hmm. Dumb and Dumber, and The Mask, mm-hmm. which is... It still blows my mind that all three of those movies came out in the same year. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, he was working. Between that year and 1996, when The Cable Guy comes out, we get the sequel to Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. Nature Calls. And then we get what is easily the outlier out of all of these movies so far, Batman Forever. Mm-hmm. Batman Forever is probably the the role that is the most different of all his roles by this point, and that he is playing not just the villain of a movie, but a a Batman villain. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost a transition into his role in the Cable Guy, in a way. Can I say that the Riddler is a very Carrie-esque figure and like he was acting as Jim Carrey, right? He's Absolutely. dancing around, he's making the noises, he's doing the, the music with his voice. He is very, like that is a time and place character, right? right. For a very different sort of Batman movie. Mm. Well, and what's interesting too is with the mask, when Carrie is the mask, you could argue that, you know, when he is that, uh, you know, 
demigod, that that is also one of the villains of that film. And I think also, like, his comedy is very hit or miss with folks. Vaudevillian is right. Like, when I was watching him do the karaoke and, and sing the Jefferson Airplane song in his own oh God. tone for, you know, an extended, like, full, <laughs> the entire song, mind you. It's my turn. One, two, three! When the truth is found He does not fit in normal society. The way that he's acting, if you were going to go out into onto the street or into a grocery store, you would have the cops called on you if you acted in the way that Carrie does in his films. He's basically a cartoon character. And he causes, in every one of his films, that personality is destructive. It can be destructive for good in like Ace Ventura, where that's, that personality is pointed like a gun at the bad guys. But I think what's interesting uh, that you bring up that he's not funny to you, Ethan, is mm-hmm. that I think that that's kind of the point is when that personality is pointed not towards like a, a comic book villain, when it's pointed towards a normal person who just is dealing with normal person problems. The difference uh, between The Cable Guy and all these other films is that this sheer force of personality is now focused intently on a normal average human being. And that Mm -hmm. is kind of what makes it unsettling. And I think also like that kind of broche of, you know, the boundary of fantasy and reality is one of the reasons why this hits as horror and that why general audiences probably rejected it. It's like suddenly you have to recognize not... Jim is not the Riddler or this green-faced mask fellow that's going to take out the mob for you. But now the mask is is following you home from work, right? And, and so, the mask is ultimately a deranged pervert. Yes. <laughs> this is a pervert film for a pervert society, I want to say. I mean, but, that's most of his films, I, I'd have to say. <laughs> Well, and like, despite how zany his character is in this movie, it's also one of the more reined in and more down to earth characters, if that makes sense. Just because I feel like I have met people with aspects of his personality. Okay, yeah, for sure. So, and the hairstyle. Mm-hmm. To me, although this this character of Chip is very radical that jim plays i i do not see this being that ridiculous of a character premise though Mm. because although they're extremes it is relatable like that's what i was picking up like what you're referencing about the character you don't like him and everything he's not funny he's not he's not supposed to be funny but the thing is for me throughout the film you're constantly are going back and forth on hating and liking him. But you like you mentioned the, 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 in our chat, you're like, I, I really wanted Chip to die right here. I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. He really doesn't like him. But, um, <laughs> no. so 
to reflect what you were saying though in terms of his career and him peaking at this point it's very interesting that when he walked into this movie he received the largest contract an actor has received in history at that point up, up to yeah up to 96 with making Whoa. 20 million dollars i did not know that yeah 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 so he in a sense like he reset the standard at that time for actors and their compensation so walking into that there were high expectations from audience and critics for this film in more ways than one I think it's really important to bring in that financial aspect because it costs so much for Jim Carrey. And uh, like I said, which was $20 million for the role. The, the movie's final gross was just 60 million domestically and 102 million worldwide, which was significantly less than other Jim Carrey movies, meaning the mask Ace Ventura, pet detective. And what was the other one? Batman forever. And then the movie, the movie cost a total of 47 million to make. And they, they chose not to have a major marketing campaign in any, any sorts. And one thing that I found really interesting was the idea that the movie had been a disaster when it first like came out was widely circulated by rival studio and production companies because Uh, they were were angry that Columbia studios set such a higher market for star actor salaries. Interesting. They're speculating on Jim Carrey, right? They Mm -hmm. knew that he had this, this star quality. And so they, they paid the the biggest bucks of all to get him in this movie. So it's just really interesting setup towards you know there are multiple things all these pieces had to fall together but the the lack of marketing and Uh putting out the trailers and Uh and information that they wanted uh or should have put out i should say uh, in combination with the backlash from all angles really kind of set this film up to fail in a way that his other films did not even though it is to this day i would say his most held up film from that time frame. Interesting. Uh, you can watch mm-hmm. this film today, which I did. Uh, <laughs> I had not, I had not, seen, I had not seen this movie up until just a couple days ago. I actually bought it and said, screw it. Like, let's nice. buy it, watch it. And you bought I, it? I rewatched it. Uh, it's on Netflix, today. baby. For free. It's on Netflix. It's on Japanese Netflix. Nice. By the way, see, nice try. Movie, nice try. This movie has Japanese dubs. And Brazilian Portuguese, which is very curious to me. Not all movies do. And so I'm always wondering what movies, what American movies people here have seen. I bet Jim Carrey was a a big pull in the 90s in Japan. I I hope to God that the cable guy had just seeped into Japanese culture (laughs) in some way. (laughs) I can feel it. So you mentioned like that it holds up. I will say this is a prescient movie it really um, is oh, it really absolutely. yeah it hits on themes that will like push off in 95 or 96 maybe near prophetic like, film almost at this yep. now is like so real that bringing them up is almost like mm-hmm. cliche and i think that's pretty cool yeah before we move on uh from just kind of analyzing the film and its audience you have this this payout right where he's getting who's the big male star like tom cruise money 
Brad Pitt money. You would mm-hmm. think that the most expensive actor would be the, you know... Nick Cage at this point. Yeah, in the 90s, Nick right? Cage money, right? <laughs> Con Air money. But the misstep is, in all of these other films that we've discussed, The Mask, Ace Ventura, uh, Batman Forever, even eventually Liar Liar, none of them alienate a child audience. The Cable Guy is not a film for kids. Oh, and I think no. that's the big no. misstep. Some of those poor reviews were probably parents Absolutely. taking their kids to see this movie and not experiencing, you know, a, a violent bathroom assault, which, you know, he does do again in Liar Liar, but it, it is on himself. And so that makes it okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I distinctly remember saying Ace Ventura Pet Detective when it was out in theaters, and I was, I was five years old. <laughs> yep, similar. One of my neighbors took me along with him and his dad and it like looking back i realized the hardest i laughed at a movie i think uh, only to be matched by borat while in theaters but yeah that that was a weird movie to see i i had no idea what to make of sean young's character at the end with Mm -hmm. the big reveal all right uh can i just say right yeah uh two movies probably forever impacted my sexual development as a child and it's this or ace ventura and goldeneye i watched those way too young they both still burn in my mind deeply you up a couple yeah yeah like long before i knew what a sex was you know i knew what what i knew sub was then you're crushing me (laughs) (laughs) yowza Anyway, I'll tell you what is what is shaping my sexuality now in this movie, Matthew Broderick, America's sweetheart. Just the he's the cutest boy. I love him. I, I have this friend and and he gave his cable guy fifty dollars and then he got all the movie channels for free. Did you ever hear of anything like that? He hasn't even done Inspector Gadget yet. Adorable, yeah, seriously. small bean. He's so cute. I just, just want to protect him. him. But we got true Joker mode Jim Carrey here, uh, spitting at mid-90s Gen X society. Matthew Broderick, right, is like the Gen X protagonist du jour. But, right, he's not quite just a normal guy. And this was weird to me. It feels like a directing choice that evolved during the course of the film. At the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie, he's very much like a caricature character, much like Jim Carrey's, and that he's very... He's a very anxious and like nervous, innocent person, right? Just a very like lawful, good type, cute boy. And then in the middle of the movie, he's just like normal Gen X guy. And it is very much like the Gen X hero is my girlfriend left me because I'm not true to myself. And I need to figure out what my life is, even though he's got like the nice job. Yeah, um, he's, he's very successful. Which is a Ben Stiller thing, too, because we all see this reality vice, the balance between you got to make the cash, but you don't want to be a sellout. That is deep in there. And so looking at Matthew Broderick here, he's at a crossroads. You see a little bit of the producers in him, right? Where he's like uh, the, the hyper character of Matthew Broderick in the producers is this very nervous, quirky guy. But here he's like balanced between trying to be Sexy, charismatic Ferris Bueller. But then he's like the everyman. I, yeah, I yeah, feel very sympathetic. He's everyman Matthew Broderick in this. I loved it. I loved how he like tried to put on the, the alpha mindset shit. 
Yeah. You know, he's like, this is going to sell it. Oh, I'm, I'm watching HBO, All baby. Come on. due to no the advice that he was being handed to right. from a crazy person. By the dark chick. The Free dark cable is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Well, so I think in the subject of just trying to stay on top here, you, you did mention Ben Stiller. Mm-hmm. So it's important to note that Ben Stiller actually directed this film. He did. This you mentioned uh, his his first his first directed film was Reality Bites, which was mm-hmm. uh, a couple years before this in 1994, mm-hmm. which had mixed reviews. And then he did not direct anything until this. But so he dove into acting roles, which his next role was Heavyweights. Wonderful, yeah, boy, beautiful film. Um, but. I found it really interesting that this film, the script for this was written already before, before Ben Stiller and Judd Apatow jumped in on the project. Yeah. Right. The, the original director of which I do not know his name, but the original creative creative mind behind it stepped away and Ben Stiller and Judd Apatow jumped in and they completely rewrote the script so much that it was actually the role that Jim Carrey ended up filling was actually initially written for Chris Farley. Chris Farley. It was written oh, for Chris Farley. wow. So yeah, should have been it's, it's an interesting layer because it could, by chance, due to poor marketing campaign, complete rewrite uh, in combination with like just maybe communication with the, with the studios mm-hmm. that there just was a disconnect maybe or some I, that's just my speculation well i think just reading about the development of this it sounded like it started as the character of jim carrey was supposed to be like a quirky uncle buck type kind of right. like lovable but socially awkward it was but actually funny jim and carrey, endearing. it was actually jim carrey himself who really kind of pushed the, the direction put it of into this character. the weird dark stalker elements yeah Judd Apatow and yeah. jim carrey so together he did though let's point that out right now that it I, made it, it a different movie film. yeah yeah a completely different film and a very unique film he took his career in his own hands and he's like no i'm it. pivoting we want this to be something different let me make this something different it's like i need to right. show you what a riddler can do yeah also riddler. he's riding high since his agent basically uh you know, earn his pay. Jesus big, money, big money hustlers. Nope. I can do what I want. You're paying me $20 million. Right. So in my introduction to this film, I happened to glaze over the the topic at hand being television. So Chip is a byproduct of the influence that Cable possessed mm. early on in that time frame. What in the spirit of possession what made your your bones crawl in this film, Ooh, Ethan? Okay. What what really spoke to you? And because you're a fan of the horror, you're a fan I, of, I love the, my horror of the movies. dark side of things. Even if it's meant to be one thing, you 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 see it the other way. How do I set it up? Right, I talked about it a little bit before, but we have like Matthew Broderick wants to have his own Gen X coming of discovery moment, where he's like, "What do I do to get?" my girl back, my very 90s girlfriend back. But then his, his life is invaded by Jim, uh, a chip. And why does he have to get his girl back? She dumped him for ah, She dumped him because he's too clingy. Yeah, he's that's right. Clingy. He's trying to commit, and she's yes. like, no, I'm not ready for that. He's and too then, perfect. 
kicked him out. By the way, can I just say, I want his apartment. His apartment is so nice. It was nice. Very quiet. Like that building. Mm, Beautiful. All of the living spaces in this movie are wonderful. Yeah, they're fantastic, especially as Jim Carrey crawls through them. (laughs) Yeah, crawls (laughs) through them. Chewing the scenery. From the get-go, Chip is a weird dude, clearly. And also... And we see this now more than ever, right? We want to talk about nice guys and incel culture. He's pulling all the nice guy tricks, but like in a not romantic setting with a little asterisk there, I'd say it's a very romantic setting, right? He's showering Matthew Broderick with gifts and assuming that his acceptance of those gifts, when really he's just like too passive to say, no, thank you. The acceptance of those gifts is an opening for him to start a relationship, right? That's what Chip sees. Like, I got a new friend. I'm going to fix his life. And we get that reveal of, like, who Chip is as a person. And it's sort of brought up in the beginning. The very beginning of the movie, right, is just channel switching through many different channels. And it's all on, like, weird. There's a lot of, like, daytime drama, Jerry Springer type stuff, kind of sex related. We see a dude getting a massage by a lady in a bikini. It then reveals that I am a man. And, right, all these sorts of things are happening. And that sort of frames the psyche of this character as a man who is driven by the the shock impulses, right? He needs to constantly be shocking everyone um, and and just dominating everyone around him. We see that physically with the the basketball game where he he goes way too hard on a on a casual game at the medieval times, which I I hate it. I'm sorry. Chip experiences blurred lines between fantasy and reality. Yes, and absolutely. They have the flashbacks a lot mm-hmm. with him. His young Sheldon doing, form. Exactly. And <laughs> it's really important to know that blurred line is represented by the constant static that is being shown. Yeah. Oh, oh, good point. Nice. Right. So really. Implying on. his psychological depravity. Right, so Matthew Broderick is trying to get this guy out of his life, but he's too nice. He is a really nice guy, not mm-hmm. capital N, capital G. He's like, he's a good boy. He's a cute, good boy. Oh, I'm sorry, but I wish I was 16 in 1995 or 96 so I could be like madly in love with Janine Garofalo. Yeah. <laughs> right? I thought, I thought that's where you were going to go. Oh, medieval times, I was like, I hate all of this except Janine Garofalo. God, but like... Punk, punk goddess Janine Garofalo. Yes, yes. Dude, so I've got good. other tables. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'll be your serving wench. <laughs> anyway, so the moment, right, it's sort of balancing between trying to be like a straight lace kind of movie. It's interesting aesthetically. The scene that turned for me, much like the blood orgy in heavyweights, was, <laughs> was the karaoke scene, right? And so you might say it would be the, the restaurant with uh, Owen Wilson, but that one's bad too. But before that, the karaoke scene is like very perverse to me, right? In the way they show all of these very strange looking people, all of Jim Carrey's friends is his premium subscribers who he hooks up with free cable. And they're all either like very, very old or very like McPoyle looking <laughs> extras. Uh, or they're prostitutes. Bunch of blue collar looking. Yeah, very, you know, say blue collar. Yeah. Um, and one then, yeah. One very scary cop. One, yeah, one very scary old cop. 
and one very attractive woman. And we see Matthew Broderick. Steven. Steve. We see Steve. Uh, Steve S. Succumb for the first time. And it's a very lurid succumbing, right? It's a weird face massage. Oh, yeah. And then, and then when she like jumps on him, right? Because he wants to stay faithful to his girlfriend, though they're separated, but he's like succumbing to Jim Carrey's influence. And like as he's about to have sex with this girl, he pops in and takes a picture. And it's just this very perverted thing. You can see the setups that are happening, right? Jim Carrey is taking this power over him. In relation to the getting him to do what he wants and like, what what was the term that you use? Subverting him? Dominating him? Dominating. Well, it's I, I one thing that I always caught whenever he was either getting him to do something that he wanted or just planting seeds of not necessarily doubt, but control. He always got like really close to him, whether in his face or right next to his ear and almost like tonguing his ear or like whispering seductively at, you know, and it was always in those moments where they just got real close together and you're just Mm -hmm. some, it kind of catapulted the, the scene or the the direction that the movie was going, I felt. Right, and you can't tell, right? It's probably played for last, but also with that creepy element that, yeah, he's it's a very sexually charged performance by Jim Carrey towards, towards Matthew Broderick's character. And it just gets more and more sexual. And so also, he's taking every point out of the abuser's handbook, and he's like, I am infiltrating this person's personal relationships, and I'm like, making my presence in his life unescapable, which starts becoming very terrifying. First, there is where he, he's going to save Steve's relationship with Robin by crashing her date with a very incredibly Owen Wilson. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, beautiful bit role. But he corners this man in the bathroom, right? The date's not going well. And then Owen Wilson's like, I need to go take a leak, babe. But you go, I'm, I care about your life. Oh, your job, what's that like? What's your job like? Um, it's a little crazy right now. We're just sort of... My, uh, Hold the... that thought for just a second. I need to use the head and I'll be right back. I want to find out about your job. I'm interested. I'm curious about it. Uh, he goes to the bathroom and Jim Carrey is in there waiting for him and proceeds to... Not quite he, violently. He bought off the... Yeah. What's the name? The porter? I don't... Attendant? Yeah. Bathroom? Yeah, attendant, bad attendant. attendant. I've never seen a person do that in real life. I don't I, think it's real. There's I a have seen bathroom. a bathroom attendant once. There are a lot of Crazy. bathroom attendants in Jim Carrey films. I know yeah, right? It's like a very... Ventura for sure. It's it implies a level of... Uh, elegance that in, right. for, for the place that they're at it's it's a way for your mind to be like oh he's taking her to a good place a nice you know? place there's a yeah he's got the nice chunky sweater on which again the fake mustache i just say <laughs> which love, is my favorite part along with the the uh, corduroys i think he's wearing like yeah boy yeah. <laughs> i'm sorry i'm taking notes i'm taking notes it's back normcore is back and the this movie is leading line, the way. The punchline of the artist sketch where Matthew Broderick <laughs> is on, on his bed eating his bowl of cereal and he just <laughs> sees this, this very apt, very Unabomber creepy <laughs> artist sketch of Jim Carrey about this bathroom assault. 
Which well, oh, all, we didn't mention the assault. It's yes. like a rape scene. Yes. Like it's very coded as a rape scene, or like he gives Owen Wilson a swirly, and that's fine, whatever. Powders him, disfigures him with things, um, and then proceeds Lays to hands say, on him real hard. Just suck it, just suck it, and pushes his face onto the blow dryer, and he's whispering aggressively into his ear as Owen Wilson is forced to take on this this submissive role. It's disturbing on a very deep level. But I'd say the most unsettling part of this movie for me, and this is where I was making predictions that were subverted in the movie, was so Matthew Broderick is trying to force Chip out of his life. Chip is like, I'm going to get revenge on you. Sends him to jail. And we begin to realize that, oh, this man is not a really a cable guy. He's like, he's something else. So he's, he gets sent to jail. How? Because he... Because he has all these free things that Chip gave him, right? And the more importantly, it's, it's, a, it's a side effect of him not being able to, to say no to him, just like you mentioned earlier. Right, exactly. Everything that it just continues to build for him until he finally says, you know what, I can't be your friend, like you're saying, and he snaps, mm-hmm. and it's just like, if he could have just said no in the beginning. Right. And Stephen tried to say no several times, but gets cut off. Until I will say, yeah, he did try. And yeah, you know he that he's cutting him off intentionally. Like, right. you know, he's, just, he's like, oh, no. Nope, this is a very I... practice form of behavior by somebody mm-hmm. who, you know, is used to taking power in abusive relationships. Right, we exactly. He, that he is, you know, not a normal cable guy. We find out that there is a pattern and a history of manipulation and abuse. Mm-hmm. Of stalking, is, literally stalking. Literally stalking his... That we learn from, as much as I hate Jim Carrey... I, I grow every day more and more to love Jack Black. And he's a beautiful man. He's a beautiful... He caught on he, so quickly. But he's no a good friend. Him. Right, right. Yeah, he's the, he's the best friend in the horror movie. That's Who's like, getting, he's, getting, right. he's getting something's edged right. out. You know? Yeah, he's seeing this loss in his own life. There was a couple things that you said, Ethan, about like mm-hmm. building up to your horror aspects here that I kind of, if, if I may, I'd like to just touch on. Chip has a, has a real loose grip of reality. And in that distortion, he views friendship as something that is bought or purchased and not necessarily earned through like regular human interaction. Um, Right. And this is due mostly to being raised off of cable and TV that has Mm -hmm. taught him that influence. Like that's one of the, like, I feel like a lot of the things that you've been mentioning is like the way that cable influences people, uh, especially in this time frame. Like there was a scene with the Tony Robbins commercial where Steven was, was down in the dumps and he was just like, Oh, I should buy this like infomercial set. Like, yeah, he was like, okay, like I need to buy this just because he was watching his TV at the time. But he, he believes that influence is the key to success. And ultimately he plays, he plays into that. And an example is that is his preferred customers. Like you mentioned, right. all he secretly controls that, everyone in town. These are like all the Joker in the dark stalked night. down yeah. individually. You can assume and gotten them into his grips, blackmailed him or something. He's, they he's seem to be happy to, with it. He's able to send him to jail because of his preferred customer, the, the right. sheriff who was at the karaoke party, mm-hmm. the operator, the uh, medieval knights, right, right, uh, right. restaurant, like so fucking Andy Dick, yeah, Andy Dick, <laughs> gross, 
huge in, in, in a page boy. But he basically views them as property or, or pieces to get what he wants. So the moment right. he, he's getting pushed back, he's like, no, I'm going to show you where your place but is. But he wants that real human connection. Like he yeah. wants to be friends with these people. Yeah. He, just, he doesn't he want to just control them. them to control them. He wants them to legitimately. He wants them to love him. But he ultimately experiences Much, that lack no, of love and that pushback, yeah. which I can assume. But I want to say. I want to talk about the dinner scene because it for me that like mm -hmm. that made me so unsettled on a level that like I can't really grasp because it's so so I can't quite understand. I mean, I get it, but I, I don't believe the setup for this. Like, well, so that's what I want to talk about that yeah, specifically. Go ahead. So he gets out of jail. And so you assume that everyone in his life knows about what happened to him and he's trying to tell them. But there's for some reason, Steve and Robin have dinner with. Steve's parents, mm -hmm. um, who are kind of established early on as being like overbearing, like, what are you doing with your life, son? Type Gen X parents, you know, them boomers. Uh, but uh, they get there and Chip is here for some reason. The door is answered by Chip. By Chip. At his Robin parents is house. like, uh, <laughs> I thought you invited him. And no, we no. He's like, I, how is, why is he here? Yeah. She says, I invited right. him. So it's right. very important to know that in another continued effort of fucking Steven over, he has edged in to her life by pretending right. to offer her free cable. He's inserted her into her space yeah. and um, is pretending art. to be, pretending to be friends. And but, since then they've become closer. So this scene takes on a dreamlike quality to me. And it's like dreamlike in the sense that if you're an anxious person, you have these sort of weird fantasies where right. everyone hates you for some reason, right? You assume that mm -hmm. everyone hates you and everyone is like belittling you, you mm -hmm. behind your back. And we see through the course of this party, it's like we see how Chip proceeds to gaslight Matthew Broderick's character and isolate him and like have everyone make fun of him and like, oh, yeah, like attributing things that Chip has done to him <laughs> in reverse. Telling the tale from his yeah. his desired point of view. Yeah. And we see progressively they start playing a, a a very sexy version of password and of course lawful good cute cute boy we must protect him matthew broderick doesn't want to say the word vagina to his mom and this is where like he starts to no break complex down. here sir yeah it starts to break down well but also they're going against the team of chip and julie and like mm -hmm. trying to highlight basically chip is trying to cuck Steve, yep. in the very modern sense of the term and it's working yeah From, he's turning his own family against him right, with, with these stories and everything socially. he's just chipping away at his integrity Chris, and yeah, robbing, him of, robbing him of robbing him of horrifying. his legs to yeah. stand on and no one really believes or they, they feel that he's overreacting steven i really think you're overreacting i'm not overreacting you're all being fooled by him he's not like this he's a lunatic and he's a felon Whoa! For, you know, for me, it's more horrifying than like a horror movie. <laughs> like I'm, I can deal with the fantasy of like a murderer or a slasher or some monster, but like this weird person who somehow, even though he's not really charismatic, is able to exude this influence over your life and control you. For me, this part of the movie, what I was thinking was going to happen was this is going to be a classic hag's tale if we want to get into role-playing games of 
of a person who takes somebody's noble intentions and corrupts it to the point that they become a mockery of themselves. I thought the movie would end with Matthew Broderick killing Chip and just like his life is in ruins, right? His relationship is over and he becomes the monster by murdering Chip, reflecting the Ben Stiller murder case, right? Like right. he becomes the next media darling of like this mild manner guy who goes crazy and, and murders somebody, murders a, a lovable cable guy. And that I thought that's what was going to happen. The new monster is born from the sure. corruption of, of this character. That's not what ended up happening, but no. at this point, I was like, this is a he's a horrifying villain. Mm. Right? He he's very horrifying and represents this like very real fear in people's minds i think or so at least my one mind. thing i felt really interesting in this this aspect of fear um the whole time you're going through this film you've just got in the background the sam sweet investigation and it mm-hmm. it's such a minor thing but it always seems to come up like it's played in real well to where mm-hmm. the angst and the the dread that is kind mm-hmm. of slowly percolating from that just popping up is always placed around chip like with the way that the just the the transitions occur and everything like just whether it was fresh off of a weird interaction with steven or something and it basically transposes those feelings and places Mm -hmm. it around chip and it kind of connects them even though there is no real connection between them other than just the way that they lay it out and that's a great point that you bring up zach is the fact that this film can be perceived one way as ethan has described where you have this outside force invading your life and basically dismantling you and undermining Mm -hmm. these your social relationships but i want to compare this to another film and i think when i make this comparison you're going to see where i'm going with this I want to compare this to Fight Club. And yeah, okay. And so <laughs> in, in Fight Club, you have main character played by Edward Norton. And then you have Tyler Durden played by Brad Pitt. And Tyler Durden is all the things that this character cannot be, right? And one of the ways that you could see this going, and when you have that little, like tiny little subplot with the sweet case, where you have this foreshadowing of the, this conflict and eventually this, this murder, and ultimately, the, the film ends with this reconciliation between these characters. And it's partially because, you know, Stephen is able to stand up to the cable guy, Chip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then Chip also kind of comes to this self-realization where, you know, all of his schemes have played out and there's nowhere else to go. But one of the things where I've been hearing you talk about this is that Chip is basically all like we, we were talking about Stephen being the good boy and Mm -hmm. chip is the the pure toxic masculinity invading his life yeah very okay i'm feeling this i'm feeling this these are all the things that steven should you know should air quotes be doing to Mm -hmm. keep his his relationship with his his own girl and one of the things that cued me off is we mentioned how um, the cable guy gives uh, Steven's girlfriend free cable and he goes into her apartment. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in that scene and I was very interested in where it was going. I remember seeing it. And so I kind of really paid attention. And yes, he peeks into her room while he's in the crawl spaces in these giant apartment crawl spaces. But what he does yeah. is he just 
He spots a birthmark. All he does is he gets that as a piece of leverage against Stephen, but he does not ogle her. He sees it, he grasps it, he moves on. He is not interested. He brings in it up. Actually. It was that hot is, in there. That, well, yeah, it gets complicated by the fact that he says that. But knowing what kind of character that Chip is, it's also easy to read that as he maybe feels that that's just something that he should say. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of programming Right. Yeah. The overarching point that I'm getting to is that all of this energy is directed at Steven, including all this sexual energy. It's not exuded mm-hmm. towards any woman to the point where he's living vicariously through Steven getting laid <laughs> with someone else. Like he's doing all these major right. steps. So it's almost as if the cable guy doesn't have a real name. He's almost like this exterior spirit or demon that has infiltrated steven's life through media now i'm getting super like away from the plot and more to the like metaphysical metaphorical so what you're saying is this is faustus yeah this is faustus yeah everything that (laughs) happens to steven happens because he makes a deal even if he's pressured he (laughs) (laughs) shit okay yeah all right and And so you also see much like heisenberg he gets a taste of that power Right, the sleepless in Seattle bit where he's starting to like alpha mindset Robin and it's working, yeah. And he's like, It just feels good, right? Even though he's the one who knocks, Stephen, remember, is the one who gets in the van at the beginning of the film. He doesn't say no, Mm -hmm. he's making these active decisions. So, even though like it very much keeps these two characters separate, there's no Tyler Durden, we're the same character twist. I still very much feel like. And this is something that came to me while you guys were speaking. I, I don't mm-hmm. even see the cable guy as a separate entity at a certain point. I, I love this analysis. I love this. Yeah, I agree. Okay, I'll, I'll bring that's, it up later. That's the horror. You, you brought it's, this upon yourself. Right, right, right. These are all of your own impulses. You want to go in the bathroom and beat up that guy that's seeing your girlfriend. All of these he, things. He is the id. He, he is in the Lacanian subject. He is the uncontrollable ego desire. I really Powerful. like that. Right? Obviously, it's it's not, but we have to it keep can the be, film grounded. It can be yeah. viewed. That's, and so it's a good Fight Club take. I like it. I'll bring it. Like in. It. I'll bring it in later because I want to relate this movie and Reality Bites and Fight Club as like <laughs> as as a Hegelian dialect. <laughs> because you are telling because this is a Gen X as fuck movie. This is yeah. powerful. This is as Gen X as like high fidelity. Gen X is reality bite. It's like Ben Stiller at this point thought he was like the prophet of a generation. I'm not going to lie, which is why we have the ending with the boomer humor book joke. Um, but it, something's being told here beyond we've, we've summoned the demon into our yeah. conversation. Thank we also have a demon origin story, you know, like where he has become detached yeah. from the rest of society. Like he uh, is a horror character, a monster. And the uh, Wendigo uh, in <laughs> American lore, you the have... The Algonquian mythic creature. Yeah, well, you have a member of society that leaves and, you know, cannibalizes and then stalks right. in order to survive. The thing about the, that's scary about the Wendigo is that it is us. It is human. It's and the it has beast. been other Yes, the, yeah. the animal desire within us to, yeah, be a predator, to consume human flesh. And yeah, that's a... Mediated through cable, baby. Yeah. That's right. Daytime cable too. is the the highest form is of the, human sacrifice. A great Wendigo. Why did you do this? Can we add another two hours? <laughs> Fuck. 
This is what this is the high level casting. This is it. This is the summoning circle. We did it, boys. We have brought the ghost of the 90s into being. How does Fight Club end? Fight Club ends with self-realization. With him embracing Tyler Durden as society falls down around him. The destruction of society as a whole. Being like, if everyone chooses this romance with yourself, then society will collapse. And it's seen as a beautiful thing interlaced with porno images. Okay. I would reality say that Fight bite. Club... We can't a, talk about reality fights. I know, like, Fight Club is a spiritual sequel to The Cable Guy, is what I want to say. It's yeah, like, yeah. The way The Cable it, Guy it, ends is that there isn't this unification. The Cable Guy mm-hmm. realizes his separateness, his otherness, his, and that he doesn't belong right. in Steven's life. And he literally mm-hmm. ascends and flies away out of his life before latching yeah. on to another... He almost life. sacrifices himself, Yes, but then doesn't. I wish he fucking died. Because someone has to kill the babysitter. Someone's got to kill the babysitter. Beautiful slash reference as well. And then man remembers book. So without Chip's TV, character no throughout this, for me, like I did not have a hundred percent of the time. I wanted, I want this character to die. You know, like in the beginning, you're, you're like, you can kind of relate to him. You're like, Oh, he clearly has some issues. And then like, you start to, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, maybe, you know, and then you go on the other side, but then at the very end, again, he comes around kind of makes you be like, okay, maybe this isn't such a bad guy, you know? Cause he, he, to quote the film, he was just like, I don't know. I'm just kind of winging it here. Like <laughs> he, he didn't know what he was doing. Right. He didn't know what outcome he wanted. He's just, he's just a lonely guy. And at the very end, he's like, you know what? No, I shouldn't be doing this. Someone has to kill the babysitter. And he jumps off the tower and, and sacrifices himself like for the well, better. Yeah, so that we of, can have like a few minutes without mass media. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i just found it a kind of redeeming moment in quality to to the character but i'd uh, say that until the very end until the, yep, i was just a about goddamn to, joke i like, was I'm just about to, about to say else. he just goes back, <laughs> back on my bullshit while he's been I, I love that outro though like where he's just like what's your real name he's like you really really want to know my name and then he gives him who, what, Ricky Ricardo? Like, right. He makes like the, there's <laughs> wacky the mask sounds. He does the laugh. Oh, I mean, hey, it's from the, I Love Lucy, uh, man. Like he, he I, know. I love that shit. He doesn't um, lean into it at all. He has no true realization. He just mm-hmm. realized almost as if he just realizes that this is done. I need to move on mm-hmm. and be like the walking dude in the stand and just move on to another. Scene. But as he is accepted, he's ultimately accepted by. Uh, Robin and Steve. I thought it was really interesting to watch this right after watching, like binge watching you on Netflix, Mm -hmm. which is all about stalking, stalking and dangerous moves. No impulse control. I just thought it was really like a really interesting mindset. Like I was just like, I just watched hobbies for single men. Yeah. (laughs) Hobbies for single men. (laughs) I want to also relate it to fatal attraction. Yeah. Where Stephen is lured by the sexual peak that is cable and mass media. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then it destroys his life and infects it because truly the relationship between Chip, the cable guy, and Stephen is a romantic one. And you have this, this miscommunication, this failure to connect, where Chip has 
just repeating the same process and the same like system of behaviors from one person after another and perfecting those strategies and behaviors. And unfortunately, it does not lead in his destruction. And also, there doesn't really seem to be, other than losing his job, there aren't too many consequences for Stephen. And since it's the 90s, losing your job means you'll have one in a week. Yeah, right. Like, he, well, he can I mean, discover himself now. He, he did go to jail. He With the love of his woman. He's got a case pending, yeah. Right. Um, so. Yeah, he can fight it. That's right. I think, I he got lawyers. He's got lawyers. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, it's supposed like, to be, I think, a happy ending. There's, yeah, there's, I feel like there's enough with, with the cable guy being this kind of mysterious evil force that he could get, like, you know, like he could get those charges dropped, especially if, you know, he can reveal the spider network that the uh, cable guy has. Of the cable. <laughs> Unless the, cable. the judge is one of his preferred customers. Exactly. Oh, no. It's but the information superman. The information superhighway. So anyway, I want to segue to culture at large. Yeah. I feel like and can I, I introduce like everything that Chip predicted as he triumphantly stood on the satellite is true. Yes. We can play Mortal Kombat with our friends in Vietnam. Talk about pervert movies with our friends across the globe. Cable has taken over. Though this is the internet. It's not the same thing as cable, but... It is, though. It's (laughs) It's through coax, baby. Yeah, I was watching the cable guy through my PlayStation. That's true. On home shopping. We're we're in it, baby. The line is blurred. Yeah. Which means I think we feel the most like Chip (laughs) now in the year of our Luigi 2020. (laughs) Uh, We've all become. Cable guy. We are cable guy. Or or at least we are afraid of cable guy. I feel like cable guy is much <laughs> yeah. more likely to be on the streets today. We dance um, with that devil. We're seeing cable guy out with the counter protesters. <laughs> right? Like, much like so really 2019's Joker is a remake of Cable Guy. Yeah. Yes. yeah honestly, yeah. Yeah. And much and, like Home Alone is a remake of Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. And if we are, Stephen, we are the cupped social justice woke Mm -hmm. society that are slowly getting played by these, by the destructiveness of mass media, which is Mm -hmm. deteriorating the minds of those around us. Like, let's be honest. We are. Oh, no. And us, too. Us, too. We are All of us. We are, we are becoming pod people at an increasing rate. We are seeing right. the most vulnerable fall and become cable guys first. Yes. Which one so, of your family members is now a cable guy talking about QAnon at the family reunion and asking if you want to invest in his off-the-grid network? So if we look at Chip as a character and not as like a monster or fiendish spirit, uh, as a human being, right? He's suffering from this intense, intermediated alienation from everyone else. Yep. He has adopted television and media as like the guiding ideological principle of his life. And so because of that, he sees every other human being as a commodity to be transacted. Yep. He sees them all as characters in his own drama. Ultimately, what he is doing is... He's not even, I don't even know if the end goal is to successfully permanently infiltrate into Stephen's life. I think his goal is to create his own drama, to be mm-hmm. 
the antagonist in his own story. Because what's the end goal of this black man? There is none. Because he can't see past the credits rolling, is what I'm thinking of this. It's like his motivation is to star in his own show that is his life. Because that's all he can think through. He has been completely maladjusted and he has not socialized to the point where like all he thinks of are, are characters. And I mean, there was a time in my life where I was that too, when I was a preteen where like, I didn't have many friends and all I saw were the interactions on TV. That's why you got to fucking kill the babysitter. Right. So his come I, to Jesus moment is to, he needs to destroy the thing that he loves the most, right? He, he adulates the praises of cable triumphantly on the satellite dish and then decides the altar yeah, it's very altered. much then, an altar to like mass media. It is a holy. <laughs> yes. One of my favorite quotes of this movie came from this scene when they're climbing up the ladder, and uh, he's like, "The problem with reality is there's no theme music to coincide." And he's like, "But it lines up with the actual mu- music, so like you hear it with yeah. him." Like, He's just like, okay, it got intense all of a sudden, but... He loves the music. He loves doing that that mouse music. His TV show. Raise your hand if you haven't inserted theme music in your daily life ever once. It's funny that the Star Trek... No hands are raised. The Star Trek battle thing is such a big deal because, like, that became a thing for me later on, but that was because of Family Guy, right? Like, it happened in Family Guy, I think. Oh, it's where they had that joke where like Peter makes the Star Trek and it plays the Star Trek. You know what? I remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. Stole it from the cable guy. Hey, but... we're all in Palm Far now, baby. Like that's all. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is very, is dreamlike in a sense. Have you guys seen Joe versus the volcano? Yes. When I, I was know. younger. It's like a it weirdly, it's like a fantasy movie almost in the way the sets are designed and stuff. And this is like the middle ground between like a, I don't know, a Fox family drama, realist, realist depiction and a stylized Terry Gilliam depiction of a world. And that like the environments are very, I I think like the business he works at is very streamlined and aesthetically clean. And it almost looks like a real place, but not quite just like his apartment, which we all want to live in. uh, But you can't buy unless you're a millionaire now there is no clutter right and one thing that really stands out to me is how they reference contemporary movies in this film Mm. not just old stuff like laverne and shirley and uh star trek and stuff but also uh water world is brought up movies from the year before are brought up which makes it like this hyper real thing it's like oh it's talking about stuff that's like in my life now. Yeah. And I mean, we all kind of live in our own references, right? We're all constantly making references to media that matter to us. And to see someone so disassociated, only, only perceive reality through references is amazing. This is the first meme. I feel like it's one one of the reasons why it, it holds up so well because the, the movies and the, the other media that they choose to to reference yeah. and touch were like the right choices to make uh-huh. because you could have picked other topical song or TV show or something, but it wasn't as influential 
of, uh, you know, whereas Star Trek and, and these other, other references that they make were and still are major hits and right. very well known. Right. And the balance is good. It doesn't do like the, the Wayans Brothers epic movie or whatever, where the references are already dated and bad yeah. by the time they're in the movie. And so instead it feels watching it now, it feels more like a period piece where you're looking back. And that's why it feels like such a Gen X early nineties movie. Because the references that he makes are how we also perceived those films. Because when he mentions Waterworld, he he talks about how, oh, I thought that was better than everyone said it was. (laughs) You know? Whereas like a Wayne's Brothers film like Scary Movie, it's it's them watching trailers for films that haven't come out yet and Mm -hmm. just quoting the highlights from those with no context and how we actually interact with them. That's why they feel so dated and alien is like, cause so many of these jokes didn't actually have an impact. Whereas everybody fucking knows Waterworld at least. Right. Anybody that's surface older material, than 18. Uh, superficial type jokes and not like something right. tangible or of substance. Right. But as far as uh, capitalism and anti-capitalism and how <laughs> just the, the utter consumption and consumption as an end goal of our lives to, to have your life revolve around media consumption, to improve your relationships through consumption. The blurring of lines is the other big you know, theme of this film, I feel like. And we, we touched on it earlier with the subplot of the sweet murders. And this, this little subplot of Ben Stiller killing his fake twin brother and then uh, fake calling 911, blaming an, Asi- an undisclosed Asian population for it. This is definitely a <clears throat> reference to the, the, the Mendez brothers and the O.J. Simpson trials and how those, as well as the Maury show and Oprah, like we have the early days of reality TV and the blurring of lines between what is, what is actual fiction and what is, mm-hmm. what is reality. And here, okay, genius level move, right? At the beginning, you get cuts of like real shows. And then in between that, it shows like a half second clip of the the Ben Stiller murder case, right? And so so you're like, I noticed, I'm like, oh, that's not real. It's it's very like, very deliberately blurring the lines, right? It's so it's it's a great representation, like you were saying, of those cases, because those cases literally had america like glued to their tvs exactly it was it was it was all anyone could focus on and talk about and it's not necessarily because they needed to it's just because it was there and the media circuit it was in their face because cable during this time frame had just such a grip on so many things. It was before the internet and everything so your main consumption of anything entertainment came from cable usually it ultimately just comes down to like the influence and control that media has over its audiences a major thing that i saw and wanted to bring up was before the sweet case even came to a conclusion which happens right as the movie ends even halfway through the film 
there's a commercial on TV of a <laughs> yeah. recreation of the sweet murder. Good and it's shit. like, it's a made for TV film depicting him in the light of the murderer and, and, and labeling it based off true events. So it's, it's painting him. So media is already, they're shoving all this out there and, mm-hmm. and influencing the the view by the nation of this highly publicized and media rampant case before it's even resolved and it just goes to show like how much how much everyone was dialed into it as well that something could be made like that and because that's something that you don't care about unless you're in the moment of it like you're not gonna watch starring eric roberts yeah sorry it looks looks great (laughs) And, and one of the things to kind of emphasize how things have changed from then to now is that cable was massive then, but there was still only 20 channels worth watching. And the internet hadn't taken over as this new form of media where you could create and upload your own media. And that, had to, that couldn't compete. There was no real competition with these massive like channels. Mm-hmm. The O.J. Simpson trial, and even before the trial, the Bronco oh. chase... OJ. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cops. It was so watched. It like a network cut away from an NBA Finals game mm-hmm. to show the Bronco chase. Like that's how much of a big deal that. And it's one of these like escalating things. It's an arms race. It's a media arms race. One one channel sh- starts showing it, and they have great ratings. So the other channel has to start showing it. And even right. though it's the NBA Finals, you're still going to get better ratings if you just show a slow moving Bronco. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it just consumes these zeitgeists of times. Was there a moment like that in our culture before 9-11? I mean... They're like the Bronco chase and like dominated all news media, all media. 9-11 did the same thing. Yeah, that was... I, that might yeah. be... Is like, there any other event that did that? No. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> Because it, the thing, because it's a live moment. I think that's the biggest yeah, distinction. Yeah. Is that and that's why it drew so many viewers because mm-hmm. basically people were watching to see if OJ got you know shot or beat up. Right, basically. I can and, I can see that. And eventually, the police like slowly followed him to his house and took him into custody peacefully and off camera, which is like the one of the few good times the LAPD has ever done anything as far as you know picking up a perp. But, <laughs> but. Everybody, like, we have to recognize why people were watching this and why mm-hmm. people, everybody was drawn. Like, it also, like, broke pizza delivery sales is another, like, <laughs> weird fun fact. Like, everybody stopped cooking dinner to watch this shit. And it was because they might see a man get murdered on live TV. Right. And Papa John had a field day. Yeah, I bet he did. And so that's why it shows up in the cable guy. And, and you see that parallel. It's consuming Stephen's life. You're thinking that it's going to end in bloody murder the same way. But I think ultimately Stiller and, and company didn't want the film to end on such a, a horrid, actual, real moment, which mm. would happen. They kind of chickened out a little bit, I feel like. Yeah, I feel that. Really, and like, I got to say, like, if you're going to have a guy pick up the book for the first time, <laughs> at, least, at least have him start at page one. And not like whatever section where and he's just like, oh, this paragraph is good on so, his face. I think it's worth mentioning that guy 
It was played by Kyle Gass, a.k.a. Yes, I was, the other half of Tenacious D. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, They're all this, there, baby. Everyone's the cast there. on this film. Star-studded affair. Is Star-studded. amazing. I yeah. cannot tell if that book was supposed to be like a joke or not, because that seems like the edgy early 90s thing to do, right? Is right. like the, the it's grenade. Gotta, it's just a joke. It's like the art of someone throwing a grenade, but the grenade is a TV camera. I mean, right? with, being, with the actor doing it. Like, he very clearly like- remembers book. He like remembers the written word, right? <laughs> yeah. This is like librarian porn. He's like, oh, the smell of the pages. Well, at least I have my books. Yeah, this tired copy of fucking Lady Chatterley's Lover. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, chapter House Dune or something <laughs> stupid. That's kind of what I wanted to say about, uh, you know, capitalism and mass media consuming our minds over a long form that is our lives. So does anybody else have any like poignant thoughts on the film that you wanted to touch on? So, right. This is a pervert film because like Chip watching Robin undress, that's, that's the audience, right? Yep. We watch the OJ trial because it's live and because we get this beautiful, right. Yeah. This tragic, like very tragic act. It becomes something that we can consume and indulge in. Right. And that is sort of the damning thing of the audience, I think, of the movie is trying to convey. And Chip realizes that to fix society, he needs to destroy the thing that destroyed him. Right. The thing that the babysitter. him. And then he lives. Terrible. It would have been an amazing reveal if he jumped off and nothing happened because he didn't exist. You know? Or if he did die, like he does get impaled. And I would prefer that they just end with the montage of the blurry screens and man remembering book. Yeah. That's and what I would have preferred. If they'd have ended it there, it would have been perfect. I, I agree because you have all the screens happening at once. This big culmination. He hits man remembers book roll credits. Do you find the helicopter scene to kind of weaken the ending? And that we find out that Chip has actually not learned anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's like there. He's like, oh, daddy needs a rest. And then he starts to stalk someone else who I thought was Clint Howard at first. He's the walking dude. He reawakens EMT. after, after his demise. He, he is Randall Flagg. He is Randall Flagg. He's, he's the Joker. And the yeah. Joker lives within all of us. Truly. I think if we learned anything in 2020 is we're all Jokers. We all got premium cable. The most premium cable of all. Should we ask the question, what happened to the actual cable guy? Oh, shit. Because it's made clear that he has never worked for... <laughs> yeah, well, no, he, he had worked for the cable company, but he got fired because fired. he started stalking people. Yeah, and the initial conflict starts because of the classic joke. He was... He had waited for him for four hours and he didn't show up. Mm-hmm. So he got into the shower and that's I see Matt that. Broderick in the shower all the time. Literally as soon as he gets in the shower. Cable guy. What happened to the original cable guy is a really yeah. great question. Oh. Well, I think he just probably like intercepted the call with his high tech abilities. Maybe he's not be, in a dumpster. I don't, don't know. know. I think he hooks the cable up because one, 
love the craft. He's connecting the world there to that's how he gets slaves. Oh, yeah, that's basically. his life. Like and he loves it. His, his he worships cable. It makes sense that he would continue to work as a cable guy on his own time. No pay, like just he's just like, let me just sneak in and and install cable in the most optimal way. Let me let me read this room with my body real quickly yeah he's, and, yes, uh, it it's it's right here here's your I, i'm body. gonna i'm gonna roll with the 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 theory that steven never actually called to have his cable set up and he set it up himself oh he, no he really wanted that cable there at the beginning he did call them though did he I, it could be a very tyler durden-esque I moment guess. where's where's the cable guy and they're like well he should be on a, on his way or was just, anyone on the other end of that phone? I don't know. I'm like going to make the argument that uh, Stephen and Robin never existed. This is true. And that this was on. It's just a movie. Head. This is a movie. Wait, none of these people exist. <laughs> <laughs> Do we uh, exist? You got me. Fucking movie. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you got me. <laughs>